Hi, everybody, and welcome back to yet another cracking installment of the Matt Brown Show. This is the built-in Colorado series, because <laughs> it's so rad. Um, but uh, with me on the line is an amazing founder doing something that I think is not only close to my heart, because uh, I'm also uh, an addict and in recovery, uh, is uh, Dave Gandini. Uh, he is the CEO of, some, of an amazing startup called Sober Safe. So, Dave, welcome to the show. Matt, thank you very much. We appreciate uh, your interest and look forward to chatting with you. Yeah, likewise. So, uh, so Dave, obviously you're not the founder, uh, but you are today the CEO as we were chatting just before we went live. Uh, but why don't you uh, fill our viewers and listeners in from around the world on a bit about your background? Obviously, we know I'm, I know you're from Detroit, for instance. Um, and then maybe uh, give us the elevator pitch about SoberSafe and what you guys are up to. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, my background for the past... 30 or 35 years have been really involved in startup companies, uh, mostly around technology, specifically fiber and, and software. And uh, I was taking a break over the last few years, and I started to raise some money for a company called First Capital Ventures. And First Capital Ventures happened to have uh, a company that they were talking to uh, by the name of, uh, I can't remember the name of the company. Justin, what was the name of the company back then in the old days? Anyway, they were talking to this company in California that had developed or partially developed a technology, and uh, it seemed to be pretty interesting because it was uh, alcohol detection, but not necessarily built for the what I'll call the preventative space, Matt, where you know DUIs or police pulling people over, things like that. And so we invested some money in that technology in that company. And uh, we did some vetting, and we found out there was some pretty uh, interesting opportunity there. So we ended up acquiring the company about three years ago, renamed it SoberSafe. And then from that point in time, we've been working on developing the technology and adding to it and enhancing it. And kind of uh, the overall pitch right now with the company is we've got two technologies. One is a, a stationary device. You place your hand on it, and it's like a larger mouse, if you will, in terms of ergonomics. And it reads your biometric uh, identity. And then the second, on your second finger, there's a small little portal with our secret sauce and our technology where we could determine whether or not there's alcohol in your system. Uh, and how we do that is through uh, sweat that comes from, or humidity that comes from your fingertips. And if you've been drinking, there's ethanol in that humidity and it triggers a signal. So we're a preventative device there. We've also taken the technology and we parked it in to a smaller uh, a piece in a band. And so this month we're issuing or releasing the commercial technology where we'll have an alcohol band. Uh, and it's primarily around right now, fleet, last mile fleet rehabilitation and a little bit of a probation space. Again, not replacing the companies that are out there in punitive space, but kind of augmenting. So that's kind of where we're at today. We raised uh, a bunch of money, uh, went public, uh, uplisted in May. And we've raised some additional capital since then, so we're fully capitalized, we're hiring Salesforce, building the company as we go. We've got uh, customers signed, and we're moving the business forward. So we're in traction right now. Amazing stuff. Um, one of the things uh, Justin uh, informed me of was just how much uh, damage or cost is manifested due to alcoholism. And the number was like $249 billion in damage or cost every single year. Um can you explain how that is 
such a huge number because it's like you know the social culture it's like you mentioned the word this like culture um of accountability if you like um and uh, i'm curious to get your view uh dave like how why is it such a huge issue well that's a great question but you know we probably would want to start off by you know giving the your viewers a a little bit better understanding on how those numbers add up so if you think think about it this way, first of all, let's take the workplace environment. About 47% of all workplace accidents, whether it's inside a company facility or on the, on, on the road, uh, involve alcohol. So think about it, 47% of all injuries. So where do injuries go to? They go to claims. Where do claims go to? Go to the insurance companies, right? And so we all see all of us experience, you know, 10 to 50. 15 to 20% increase in our insurance costs on an annual basis, whether it's personal or business. And so that all that money adds up. At second, about 13% of all company vehicles on the road with you and I and our families and our wives and children, about 13%, the drivers have alcohol in their system. And that's just based on drivers that have been pulled over, accident, but based on data that's available. So we, we, we've got to know it's more significant than that. So if you take those two pieces... And then if you take rehab and start stacking it up, let's look at the rehab uh, stats. 70% of all individuals that go into rehab in the first year go back within 12 months. Over four years, 90% of the individuals, it's a horrible statistic, right? But it's a tough, it's a tough habit. It's a tough situation to be in and, and to kick. So if you take all that, and then there's some Involved with, involved with alcohol, you're also stacking drugs on top of that, right? It's not just alcohol. Usually there's a stack there. So if you take all the dollars that are being spent, let's just take a simple, a 30-day stay in a facility is anywhere between 30 to 50 grand. And you're, and you're repeating that in the first year. So the numbers, I mean, how they add is based on some of these statistics and these percentages I've given you, up to $249 billion a year. And there's mental health in there as well. But it's mm. it's it's a, a probably about a nine or ten uh, item list to get you that number, but it just keeps happening over and over. And what do we do, right? I mean, we put the individuals back in for a month, they go dry, and they come out. So, so what we're seeing, and I'm going to go a little bit off the road, Matt, but what we're seeing is we just signed a deal with a company. Can I mention the company name on this podcast? Yeah, it's your show. Yeah, so we we just signed a deal with a company called uh, North Star Care. They're in Seattle and they're acquiring bands from us. But here's the difference, Matt. What they're doing is they're bringing individuals into their programs that and they won't stop drinking. They don't make them quit drinking in the first day or whatever it might be. They work on them psych- psychologically and they go through process. They have health care professionals about telehealth and they work through a process where they work. They wean them. They don't just completely go through a period where they're dry and they, and they try to move forward from there. And so far, short term, it's very short term uh, statistics, but they're well over 90 percent in, in, in individuals that are successful in the first year. And you're seeing that these independent companies pop up and insurance companies are starting to care about, you know, the costs. And, and they're, they're not renewing in, in insurance for some of these individuals that have been in one or two or three times or two or three times. So there's this whole little groundswell of activity now with these other companies developing alternative treatments and care for uh alcoholism so we tied into that as well Mm -hmm. just uh maybe to double click on one of the stats you shared like 13 percent of 
truck drivers, if you see a truck like times 100, like 13 of those guys are actually have alcohol in their system, that for me is a pretty frightening number. It, it is. It, it, and it's, it's only drinking has increased and, and everything has increased around the last couple of years with COVID. And so another reason why our device is playing in a little bit more significantly is because if you're going to breathalyzer today versus putting your fingers on a device versus wearing something, I mean, you're not blowing, you know, you're not blowing breath on people and through people and around people. And as you mentioned, you know, you've got that tube. You're not you're not using that. You're not having to discard that tube uh, and, and go through those processes. So there's a lot of reasons why. We're starting to gain traction and notice in areas, but at the end of the day, we're trying to we're trying to help the situation, and we're trying to improve that forty seven percent, improve the thirteen percent, improve recidivism. But we've got these partners, and we're working through these channels as we go to try to improve it and make the environment safer and, and save lives. That's that's our strategy, right? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, and Dave, uh, who's responsible for this problem? I mean, I'm curious about that, isn't it? Because you would say, I oh, know it's the individual, but no, but hang on. If you're a fleet, uh, if you have a fleet of trucks and you employ a thousand truck drivers, whose responsibility is it to ensure that communities are not put at risk because of substances um, you know, like alcohol? And we've been quite like narrow today. I mean, you and I know... And at least I'm hearing it's like, you know, Florida have now uh, decriminalized uh, marijuana. So you can, you know, in the near future, you could go fill up your truck with petrol or diesel or what have you, and then go and get a, you know, a gram of weed, <laughs> like right. hydroponic, you know, major hardcore stuff. And no one would be there to control you. You know what I mean? And then when you get oh, into yeah, the truck, sure. there's no like, there's no like safety system that says scan your finger here to test with it. And then the the latest news is you might as well have come up with a new business unit soon called Psilocybin Safe. Yeah, you probably <laughs> saw it. it's crazy. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I'm 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 on board with you. But the thing is, is that I mean, it happens right here in Colorado. Forget Florida. I mean, you can purchase and you can put some, as you would say, petrol, as we would say, gas. In our, in our vehicles and they can do that. But, you know, there's, we've been asked a lot about, you know, the, the cannabis, the THC, and let, let's not forget, you know, the, the other issue, which is the painkillers, right? I mean, there's mm. significant issues with opioids, but, you know, the, the alcohol problem is so significant. I mean, we have to, we have to maintain our focus there as a, as a company and a business. We're obviously in contact with companies that develop other technologies and could we, 
integrate those in the future? Yeah, we could do that. But right now, the focus is around really trying to jump in and, and help in this alcohol area. So that's where we're at today. But in terms of your original question, who's responsible? I mean, businesses, and I, I'm not trying to poke any holes in in, in these companies and, and these leaders and what they're doing, but every company has a zero tolerance policy. I mean, some, some fluctuate slightly from that, but it's a responsibility of the management team and the owner of the company, right? And what they do is, what you mentioned with long, long haul trucks, there's DOT has compliance testing, but it's one out of every X people, and it's over a certain amount of time on the road. And I think if you go and do the math on that, they have like less than a 2% chance of ever catching any drivers drinking because they can time their drinking in between routes and, 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 and number of hours, and they can they can escape that. So there there is a policy, but... I mean, there wouldn't be accidents if that policy was working. Of course, that, that's not under our control. But what we're finding is uh, one of the uh, kind of the interesting hooks to what we're doing is if we find if a company can save money on their insurance and their liability because they can prove to the insurers that they're safer, they're more likely to want to engage. And otherwise, because we're disruptive, Matt, we're in the early adopter phase of the technology, even though, I mean, you said it's a great product. I can't tell you if I had a dollar for everybody said we had a great product, we probably have a great year this year in revenue. But the point is, is that the product's disruptive, the technology is, and we're, we're still in the early adopter phase. Um, so that's where we're at. But back, back to my thought about the insurance, we're also working with insurance companies and one of them local here. We've worked with, uh, with one of the, the largest, uh, uh, workers' comp firms, Pinnacle, uh, beginning of the year, and they, they really like what we're doing, and we've done some testing with them. But if we can combine it with reducing liability for companies, reducing costs because of those liabilities with insurers, I think that's kind of a better way for us, and that's our thinking of how we get in and make make more of a, a statement in that space and save more lives. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Dave, what have you actually built? Because uh, I've been uh, uh, sharing your website and playing some of the videos and stuff. So, if you guys are catching the audio uh, only version, head on over to the YouTube channel to catch uh, what's going on there. But so, what have you actually built? Because, like, I was, I was quite uh, interested in the uh, the examples shown where when you're walking into a building, you actually have to scan your fingers. It's almost like when yes. you put your security card and scan your fingers. Like, I think if you did something like that in the UK, you would make an absolute killing because, yep. you know, this like, is really, this is really funny that you said that because let me, I just got a text. Uh, call me as soon as you can. One of my clients with a last mile delivery business in the UK loves your technology and they want to talk to you immediately. Yeah. Well, there <laughs> right you go. There, I mean, it's, a, it's such a huge, because I used to do that, you know, back then. I lived in London for, you know, like seven seven years or so. And that was the thing that you did. Like you, you know, you would go to the pub for lunch and then you would smash right. a couple of wife beaters or Stella, a toi. <laughs> um, and then you would come back to the office like inebriated. You wouldn't work, you know, you like, you you know, it's, quite, it's actually over and above the liability to the employer, it's actually a, a, a cost of productivity too, isn't it? Sure, sure. So, so back to your question, what we've developed is we've got a biometric sensor, and which is off the shelf. We've combined that with our sensor and our IP and our algorithm. I mean, the secret to our technology is reading that signal from the alcohol sensor uh, and, and, and applying our uh, algorithm to that. 
and doing the math and coming back and be able to report back on whether or not there's a presence or absence of alcohol. And we do that in less than 10 seconds. And that's that's how the device works. And we can't, we have a significant patent strategy around it. We've got you know significant IP around it. And we continue to add to that and further develop it to, to stay ahead of the potential competitors of right now, the only competitors we have today uh, are the breathalyzers. So breathalyzers are a couple minutes to do what you do and they're not as hygienic as ours. But again, it's all about a biometric fingerprint, a sensor, uh, IP, and, and an algorithm that's stored in the cloud that reports back on a real-time basis the information that it receives from your two fingers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to change gears for a moment. Um, what, uh, well, you mentioned that uh, you've, you, you're fully capitalized, um, and so you've actually raised money in what could one could easily say is a very challenging environment or under very condi- uh, challenging conditions. Uh, you yeah. raised over $20 million in those conditions. Um, what was your experience doing it? Like, did you find it harder than you expected? Was it easier than you expected? Yeah, well, <laughs> so um, <clears throat> the, the, the you know, for other business owners and individuals, you know, interested in individuals in your podcast, it, it didn't, we, we weren't, we had no expectation that we'd be raising money the, you know, as late uh, as May of this year. And so we thought we were going out in the first quarter and we had some issues with, uh, with the banks that we were working with and we were trying to get uh, traction and get on the same, you know, have equal footing with our partners. And so what happened during that process is we ended up making some adjustments and we had, uh, we found a, a different or a new partner to, to raise money for us. And that period was drastically, drastically shortened. Uh, I think it took us about three weeks to raise money. Started at the end of maybe end, very end of April. I think we were finished by May 8th, money in the bank of May 20th. So it was a very, very tough market. But I think what got us there, uh, of course, patience, uh, perseverance, uh, but we have a great product and, and everyone understands the investment uh group understands and the our investors at, the, at that time understood that this this mark this product applies across so many different markets and be so significant uh in changing the culture in, in business and in, in, in the roadways that uh we were going to get a shot to go out and make it happen so uh yeah it was difficult but i think the product got us through and we also had ended up with some really good uh, banking partners that helped us in tough times and then um how we got the, the real the second tranche of money uh, was based on uh, our, our really our message going viral because we've got significant digital and investor relations investments. Because today, when you build a, a business and you're small and unknown, you have to constantly get eyeballs on your business. And there, there are a number of ways to do that. We were successful in how we built that strategy. And, and we had a about an eight week uh period where our stock was really performing. We were trading significantly and uh, we were able to raise some additional capital during that period. So it was very helpful. But yeah, it was it was difficult. But I think if you have the right partners and the right product in any market, you're going to be able to raise money. And if you have something that's that, that the investors don't feel you'll get a shot to, to make it work, then you know in tough times, you're not going to get the money. So mm-hmm. we were fortunate. We worked hard and uh, we feel real good about our position right now. Fantastic. Um, so, um, what is an uplisting? 
I'm curious about this because I've had, well, I'm curious for my audience to understand what you know about uplisting because there's quite an interesting way to fund a startup, well, a company or a startup such as your, uh, such as ServiceSafe or any startup really. I mean, there's obviously public and private markets that you can use. Um, I've had guys on the show who've listed, on many guys who've listed on the NASDAQ. I've had people doing reverse mergers. I've had guys doing angels. I've had guys doing crowdfunding. I've had you know private equity guys. I've had pretty much all of them. You're the first one that's done an uplisting. <laughs> so, oh, wow. You I know. should feel so, privileged. I know, right? That's why I want to talk about it. Um, so, yeah, what, so, so what is it? Like walk us through why you chose to do it that way. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, the hardest part of, anything and everything we did and what you questions you had just asked me was um, uplisting a company from the QB, you know, we were public from the QB uh, to NASDAQ with no revenue. I mean, that was like the, if you would have asked me today, if you would ask me to do something like that and you were going to give me a bunch of money, I'd say, yeah, not going to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. But what it is when we took the company out, we had some, we had some aspirations of doing, uh, some different kinds of funding. Reg A came up as one of the potentials. I'm sure you've had guys that have done that. So we were, the company was originally, and by the way, the company was TransBiotech, which just finally came in my, my mind here. So TransBiotech, when we acquired them, they were a penny stock there in the pinks. We uplisted to get some credibility as we were raising money in the next rounds. So we uplisted to the QB. We had to go through FINRA and go through a number of different audits and things. Then once we knew that where we wanted to go and the money that we needed to raise. We didn't think that a reggae was the proper vehicle. We were, we were concerned that we couldn't raise enough money. So uplisting from one market, you know, the QB uplisting to, to another public market, the NASDAQ, we could have uplisted to the New York, but it's just changing your listing from one public entity to another. So we were, we had a, we already had a public company. We're already reporting. We had reported for two and a half years financials, and we, we were familiar with the SEC and all the rules and regulations. So an uplisting just took us from one public uh, exchange to another. Right. Fantastic. Would you, would you, uh, is it, is the trigger for doing an uplisting because you already were trading publicly with the, is that like, what's the, why would you choose that versus say, because you didn't, you know, you could have not done, you could have gone another direction, couldn't you? So I'm curious to maybe strategically, when does a, when does a founder or, or entrepreneur say, hey, I want to do an uplisting? Well, I mean, if you look at, uh, in this particular case for us, um, you know, there's very little trading. We had very little trading in our stock. You know, it was, I'm talking like hundreds of shares per day. And we put no news out on the company intentionally because we knew we were going to make the next move. But the primary decision for us to do what we did was based on raising enough capital to get the business across the line. I mean, we had raised, we had raised up to that point, um, I think about seven and a half million. And uh, we couldn't continue to, you know, to go hand to mouth with two to $3 million raises. So the only way to get a significant chunk of money we felt uh, was to uplist a company in, 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 on NASDAQ. So then we had access to other opportunities like the pipe that we did uh, when we raised the $6 million. We did that in like three hours. We can we could also raise via an S3 where we put stock in the market. It gives you so many – it gives you A, credibility, uh, Matt, 
and it gives you numerous options to raise additional capital. So we preferred to get on the NASDAQ sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. And the other thing uh, that I learned was that you actually listed on the NASDAQ in the worst week <laughs> ever. Oh, yeah. No, it was, it was only the... Th it was the third worst week since two, the 2008 crisis. So, no, it wasn't the worst. It was the third worst. So we took third place in that area. But, yeah, 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 we did. And it was very painful for, you know, for me for a, a number of days and weeks getting calls from <laughs> many groups of investors and individual investors. And uh, safe to say I was semi-depressed for, you know, probably the month of May and early June. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was, no, it was not a lot of fun. That's a, it's a, it's a precarious position to be in, isn't it? Cause suddenly, you know, have all these investors It's like, yo, like what's going on with your share price? <laughs> right. You know. What happened? It's like the, yeah, it was a very, it was a very steep decline. And, and again, if you look at, if you look at that, and I mean, sure a lot of CEOs out there that have and entrepreneurs that have gone, I'm sure guys that have gone public and raised money. You know, when you when you go out and you're a small cap company like we were with no revenue and we had given no guidance, the the, the 425 was just enable us to get out into the market because we had to do a reversal. You had to have a certain valuation, certain price per share. So there was no math to that. There were no comps to that. It just got us out. So we knew that it was going to be difficult until we started to get into traction and start reporting revenue results. But it was just, you know, a bad time period. So we've been able to recover, and then we're going through some some issues right now with uh, the shares that have been into the market based on the uh, the last raise that we had. But we're gonna we're gonna have uh, uh, up and down battle until we announce uh, we give revenue guidance, and that'll be the end of the first quarter of next year. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, just uh, long term, obviously you're a, you're a visionary, um, and you've been around the block. Um, when what? Well, so firstly, are you thinking already about a possible exit? And when should a founder start thinking about those sorts of things? Well, my first my first answer to your question is founders, if you look at statistics, founders don't. And that's why I say I'm not a founder, I'm a co-founder. Founders don't usually make it through the gauntlet to get the company out. They're usually replaced by business professionals and individuals that have had experience in managing companies. So I'll answer this jokingly as a co-founder. First of all, um, there's no no thought process from the team right now as far as an exit. Um, our thought process right now is to uh, make our make or beat our objectives for 2023 and continue to sign customers and build the business. It's too early on. We think we have some significant opportunities and we're talking to some significant federal agencies about things, but it's way too early right now. It's deploying capital and building the business. So um, we're thinking, you know, we will do, so I'll give you a different answer. We are talking to some larger entities outside of our footprint uh, about licensing and about distribution. If you've read some of our press releases, we've signed six distributors right now. And I think in the next uh, month or so, we'll start to see fruit from those distributors. They're signing customers of their own because they have a warm customer base. But the next step, the, the two next steps for us outside building the business will be licensing and then maybe adding distribution outside the footprint. You know, I mean, you've talked, there's, there's groups in the UK and Ireland and, you know, we've had other conversations, but that, that would be the next logical step to, to really jettison 
the product into different market market segments and grow the revenue quicker. So that's really where our focus is right now. Fantastic. Um, so, uh, Dave, if you were to uh, think about um, you know all the mistakes or failures that you've had along the way, uh, obviously there's many in everyone's journey. Um, what would you point to as say being the you know in your from your experience at least, what's the greatest you know failure quote unquote uh, that you've uh, that you've experienced on this journey, or maybe even in your entrepreneurial, uh, you know, career, um, and what did you learn from it? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, I would say, um, in terms of failure, uh, I guess we could use a broad term of failure, because no executive, you know, their ego. We, we don't like to say that word, right? But uh, mm. I think what I I think this is the case for me in my career. And I think a lot of executives that are listening in or a lot of, a lot of your listeners would say, you know, when you, if you have significant instincts and you follow your instincts, sometimes it's somewhat frightening, but if you have instincts and they've always, they've always really proved right for you, uh, you got to stick with them. And I think, you know, allowing in this journey, allowing uh, individuals you know, significant, let's say shareholders, big investor, you know, people that are involved emotionally and financially, um, everybody's trying to take you down a different road, right? For what may or may not be beneficial to them. And it's uh, just sticking with your instincts. And I, we've taken some left turns and some right turns where today I would say we shouldn't have taken those. But I think, you know, you, you've got to learn as you go through the process, for example, I wouldn't even have thought about doing a reg A and I wouldn't have wasted six months, you know, to, to uplist. I would have gone right from pinks to, to NASDAQ, but it's easy to say from what I've learned. But it is really sticking with your instincts and not being over influenced, you know, gathering information, but not allowing yourself to be over over influenced if you're the guy. You mm-hmm. gotta make you, you fall on the sword, it's your decision. So just really spending more time in the future, getting information and getting insight, but still reacting based on my instincts. And of course, my team, which is very important too. Mm -hmm. I I rely on the top three or four guys on my team, you know, to gut check things that we're doing as well. It's not, it's not just one guy that runs a company and you've got to rely on, you know, you make, you're the quarterback, you make the call at the end of the day, but you still got to rely on your players. So it's all of those things. Yeah, it's a it's a really important point uh, that you're touching on, uh, I believe, because I think you know, especially in the software startup lean, you know, Eric Ries, Steve Blank space, it's like yeah, speak to your customers, you know, and then invalidate assumptions. So you get out the building and you get to like MVP faster, and you build some like product that people actually give a shit about. Um, and I, I don't know, like I've, I, in my experience, I'm kind of like sitting on your side of the camp. Like I know that there's a space there, right, for that fire. Um, but I think what, what even then, you know, when you're trying to figure out like what it is that is the right decision to make, because it's really about decisions. Do I build that or build that? Do I go here or do I go there? Do I find like this or do I find like this? Or do I hire this person? So it really comes down to decision making. So it's your ultimate power. And so I think if you take too much opinion you start to lose your own um right and so like the value is actually in deciding and taking an action and learning from and maybe you win like you know elon musk said i'd rather learn from from success than from failure um 
And, uh, and one of the things that I wrote about in my book was this idea of like triangulation. So I don't believe you need 300 opinions to make a decision. You need maybe three people. And so this is where this triangulation idea um, uh, comes from. So I'd love to share it with you, Dave, and, and maybe you can tell me what you think. But the idea is like you have, you're thinking X. I need to make this decision, but you're not sure. So you, you seek the counsel of three people that you trust. So it can be someone on your team, a board member, and just a mentor or, or your wife you know, or husband or what have you, or your best friend. But the idea is you go to them and you say, hey, I'm thinking X. And then you get them to invalidate whether X is, in their opinion, right. And you're looking to triangulate the general consensus faster so that you just make the decision. You know what I mean? Because it's almost like it's like uh, insurance, isn't it? It's decision-making insurance <laughs> is the way that yeah. I would describe it. Um, but, it's the, it's a, it's, it, but it isn't about 300 people. Agreed. So, yeah. so my comments on, on, I mean, triangulation is definitely key. And I think I do a little bit of that inside and outside the company, but I will, there's one change that I would make to your theory is that I don't think you necessarily go to like-minded people because, you know, it's it, my, my old strategy or my thinking is if I'm going to, I'm going to relate this to baseball if I'm going to hire a management team, I need a third baseman, a shortstop, a second baseman, a first baseman. I don't want a first baseman playing third. He's not played third before. He can't do it. So what I tend to do is I've got a I've got a confidant on the board that's got a significant legal background and entertainment background. I've got a confidant in, inside the company here, my, my CFO. I've got a confidant in, in Justin Davis that works with me on the IR side. And then I've got one more individual on the outside and we all have, we're all think differently. So I'll explain my, my strategy and get input. And I think what happens is the strategy doesn't necessarily change significantly, but maybe it gets molded or sanded down or modified slightly and it becomes a better strategy than just my strategy, but going to like-minded people, they're just going to agree with you. I want to go to people that won't agree, that don't want to agree or won't, necessarily think they have to agree with me so that's mm. the only change triangulation uh but not with people that are like-minded because you'll get everybody will agree with you mm -hmm. yeah no one's going to tell you you suck to your face great idea man yeah i do that too oh gee that's not gonna be no right well <laughs> yeah. no I, people yeah. have told me that and i've told other people they suck to their face i mean it's <laughs> you know so, uh, <laughs> No. Just not. I grew, well, the thing now, the, the thing is, is that you know, I grew up an, an athlete, and I played Division One hockey, and I made it through you know my my neighborhood and out of my neighborhood because of sports. And so, to me, you're as good as everybody's as good as as their as their last game, and it's about learning how to lose and pick yourself up because you don't win every game. And so, I, I'm fine with keep you know I keep score with myself and what I do and how I do it, and I do the same. I treat my my, my guys on my team, I'm a coach is what I do. And everybody, I have to influence these guys and kick them in the butt all differently to get them going. So to me, it's, it's all, it, it, I want everybody. We, I think we have a very open group where they think something is a mistake or a bad idea. They'll say it, which is great. Great environment to be in. Mm. Um, so I want to have a bit of fun with you, Dave, for a moment. So I'd love to give you the keys to the uh, Matt Brown show time machine. Um, and if you could go back to yourself on day one of Server Safe before it was Server Safe or whatever day one was uh, for you, and if you think about all the things you've learned, uh, succeeded at, failed at, etc., what advice would you give yourself on day one? 
Go ahead. I'm going through the map. Brown, is it like the hot tub time machine kind of a thing? Is it similar? Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. It's uh, what's what's what right, was so the movie? Someone, hot tub time machine. I, uh, wasn't it like Bill and Bob? I, something Bob, Dave and Bob, Bill and Bob's excellent. Some yeah, Ted and somebody's Ted dead, and, excellent. Yeah, adventure, Bill adventure, and Ted. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Well, I'll try to put myself in that frame of mind. Um, boy, you know, at that point in time, we thought we had something that worked. We didn't know any different. We were kind of focused on a market. Um, uh, you know, boy, that's a hard question, Matt. Um, at that point in time, I think I did everything the right way because I eliminated, uh, the whole staff that was working for the company at that point, brought in my own president, president and CEO friend of mine, and we started to rebuild. So that's probably too soon, really, where at the end of the first year, is where we talked about, you know, going from the penny to the QB. I would have, I would have really thought about the reggae, the time spent in the reggae, the money spent in the reggae, and how that would affect the business. Because at the time, the markets were hot, and we could have raised a lot of money in a very quick uh, a period of time back then. So I think the mistake that I made, and what I would do differently, is I would have taken the path of the reggae. I would have went right for the Nasdaq. And found the necessary group and banks that I needed, and and built the and also would have probably been much more money at that point in time we could have raised. So the mistake was at the fork in the road I should have took Nasdaq and not Reg A because I ended up spending four or six months wasting time on that. So mm. it would really be in year start of year two where I would have to have that conversation. So yeah, um, Dave, if uh, if you weren't doing what you were doing every day, what would you miss the most? Uh, I would miss just being involved in solving and creating and the whole, uh, opportunity and potential. I mean, I'm driven by potential every day I get up and I, I know there's potential for us to be great. I know there's potential for us to do things. And if I didn't do this, I would miss the potential of, of the success for the companies and the shareholders, because I think this particular adventure for me is going to be my most significant opportunity. And I think I'm going to leave a mark, you know, on society with this one because of the safety and the prevention. And I think I would miss the fact that I couldn't get to uh, smell the success and be involved in the success of the business when we cross that threshold with customers and revenue and, and the ability for us to, be saviors in some way and make a difference. Mm. Um, it's interesting that idea of success because uh, I've had I've done over five hundred interviews um, and you know I was chatting to a billionaire at one stage and I said to him, "Hey, do you do you see yourself as successful?" And he was like, "No." And I found that answer like that idea of like most entrepreneurs like they don't it's like this imaginary finish line. You know, it's like, well, when this happens, then we will be successful. <laughs> but then you get there, and then it's like there's another line, isn't there? Like it's never quite the finish line, unless it's really yeah. the finish line. You know, if the thing dies or, you know, not going to earn it. Um, so what does success mean to you as a yeah. business? That's a, that's a great point. And I think it's, um, for me, it's uh, like I give myself, you know, 
probably a B, a, probably a B right now grade for I could have done things better and I continue to work on doing that. Um, I guess success is for me in this particular endeavor, success is seeing this product in the market and saving and improving lives. It's obviously we've got to get to the point where we're making money, but that's a business thing. Success for me is seeing this product globally in the market and being preventative and being successful in helping families and individuals and companies perform better, live better lives and be more harmonious. I think that's for me success. There's also the business pieces as well, but I'm one that doesn't necessarily celebrate steps. To me, they're all steps to get to the end. And I do agree with the billionaire when you know successful, I don't know, it always changes, right? If you're driven, if you're truly a type A entrepreneur, I don't know if you ever feel that you get there. But for me, it's about doing the things that I'd mentioned. If we could make a difference, man, that'd be so cool. I, I wouldn't know if it'd be success, but I feel really good about myself. Mm. I know it's a, I think things are certainly changing. I think like, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, when entrepreneurship wasn't as a popular idea as it is today, right? Like I said, oh, I'm an entrepreneur, cool. I don't know, 50 of them or 100 of them. Um, you know, so back then, um, there was this idea, and I, maybe it came from the eighties, because <laughs> of like well, I was the, in, I was there. I was an I mean, entrepreneur in the eighties. I can yeah, tell you, like, yeah, I was there. Um, tell, uh, ask me the question. I'll tell you. I was at school. <laughs> yeah, I was an uh, entrepreneur. Yeah, exactly. I know, right? There you go. I didn't know I was an entrepreneur. I thought I was a broke guy starting a startup company, but that, they call it entrepreneur then. Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But it's like this idea of like you must make money first and then make a difference. Do you know what I mean? Like there was, wasn't it like, it was yeah, like yeah. that. It was, well, that was well, how it was. A, right. Well, that, yeah. There, I mean, the, the technology shift, you know, in the, in the mid eighties with fiber optics, it just opened so many opportunities and doors. It was a whole different market. It was meteoric in terms of the rise in the NASDAQ and everything else. And then we gave it all back in early 2020. But I mean, you can't, you can't do, you can't look for a job because you want to make money. You can't build a company with a group of guys because you want to make money. If that's where you're going first, you're not going to succeed because you know that's not that's not the fundamental, you know, seed to what you're doing. And I understand everything's different and you know, I see it my my children, they're my younger boys are all pretty successful business guys, but they want everything to happen and their first goal is for them. Well, I need to do this because I have to do this. You know, it's it's about it's about the team and it's about creating success. It is, I always say, I'm not a big baseball guy. I'm really more of a hockey guy. But if the guy walks in to the clubhouse of the GM and he's hit two home runs in the season, he wants to get paid for hitting 50. I mean, that ain't going to happen. The guy that hits 50 is going to get a new contract. Chances are he's going to get paid, right? We got to go out and hit 50 home runs to be successful. And all that follows you. When you mentioned it, I mean, you, you can sit around and drink, you know, bourbon and dream about being acquired, but it's just a dream. You have to build a successful business first and everything else then follows you. So we'll, we'll get excited about those things in the future, but right now it's serious, man. It's heads down, working hard and being serious to get things done. Now we still have some fun, but I mean, this is a serious time for us. We have to step up. We have to work smart. We have to work hard. We have to produce. We have to hit 50 home runs. I'll take 49, but we have to hit 50. That's, mm -hmm. the way, that's the way it has to be. And then everything else will happen from there. If you start by saying, 
I really, I can hit 50. Give me my money now. And you hit six. Goodbye. Uh, that's the difference. It's you got to You got to go out there and prove yourself and prove your company. Mm. So that's where we're at right now. Awesome. Look, um, I'd love to ask one more question then we'll wrap up, uh, okay. Dave. So, um, sure. why do you do what you do? Like when you wake up in the morning, what gets you out of bed? <laughs> My wife tells me it's time to get up. Um, <laughs> Why do I do what I do? I mean, it, I've asked myself that question, you know, a number of times when things were not going very well. Um, I like to be, I've always been kind of a problem solver and wanting to do something that's difficult. If there was a group of guys in a room and somebody said, well, you know, this is extremely difficult. Does anybody want to try this? And I'd raise my hand. Uh, I, I get up, as I mentioned earlier, I want to make a difference and I'm motivated, excited by the possibility of what we could do. Every day I've got the most, I got the greatest management team that I've ever had. And, and, and engaging with the team and all the things that we're doing and the sales guys and all the potential that we have, potential gets me up and gets me excited every day. I love prospect and potential. Just love it. Mm, amazing. Dave, uh, thank you for being on the show, man. It's been a uh... You know, a real privilege getting to know you and to getting your story on record. Um, and, you know, I really do sincerely wish you all the very best. I hope you guys really hit the numbers and the kind of scale and, and ultimately the kind of difference that you want to make on a world stage because, like, um, I was watching just a cliff note um, is that, uh, I don't know if you've watched a show on YouTube, um, he's like a professor of biology and is fucking name has not escaped me but uh, he's got you this can nasty- say the f word if i if i know him could have said the f word i would have been throwing yeah. a few by i didn't know that name? okay good now yes. i don't watch youtube tv i watch youtube well, but I- no i know it's it's fine it's fine anyway so he's it's not lex friedman other guys will know anyway cluster but anyway so he was basically uh talking about like um the effects of marijuana on like people and unpacking all the you know the specifics about it and he was explaining how like what's consumed at the top of the pyramid like the most consumed drug and it's after caffeine it's alcohol um and uh you know like we all know someone who's afflicted by it um and so you know this is a real it's a cause it's not even a mission you know it's a cause that you're going after so um i shared that because i really sincerely wish you and the team all the very best i hope you guys go out there and do it Thank you very much. And, you know, maybe we could you could check back with us in April. We have all this great news. We could, we could be on the show talking about all our yeah, success. Man. So keep in touch with us. We will do. Thanks so much. Nice, to meet, nice to meet you. Thank you very much. Anytime. Cheers, guys. Okay, thanks. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients haiku went from a two percent share of voice globally to an 11 percent share of voice globally in only seven days if you'd like more information head on over to showworksmedia.com for more that is showworks with an x.com